all right, I'm here with Caitlin and Alan to talk about fast charging. But first, Alan has got uh, Google's public DNS. Yeah, some interesting developments in the world of DNS. Um, apparently, back in 2008, 2009, there was an, a draft for an RFC called DNS Hex 2.0 that proposed changing um, one of the, the, the fundamentals uh, uh, conventions of DNS and that uh, it's DNS being completely case insensitive. But with this proposed hex 2.0, which never became an RFC, um, the, the, the suggestion was, well, we can actually start paying attention to capitalization or case and that this is actually a way to introduce an additional layer of security into DNS. Yeah, and so this, sure. this, is, this is the idea and I, I don't fully understand how it works. So keep that in mind, but what Google Public DNS is going to do, in fact, they, they were proposing to do this at the end of August and I'm not sure whether they actually went ahead and did it because there hasn't been an announcement, but what they were suggesting to do is that they would follow this uh, proposed uh, not quite RFC and they would actually start using um, uh, mixed case in DNS uh, on their, their, their servers, their cache servers, their public servers, I think, for everything, or is it just their name servers? I'm not even sure. It's a rather short announcement. And uh, what they're going to do is have case randomized uh, records. And this will uh, allow them to defeat the, uh, some of the, the DNA, uh, DNS attacks that we've seen in the past. So it's a pretty good idea. So now you're not just uh, relying on the ID and port randomization. Now you also have uh, case randomization on top of that. And so that makes it significantly more difficult for attackers to poison uh, DNS caches. Well, I can see a few problems. I mean, the first one is the old system was working, right? The, the one well, that stopped the original Kaminsky attack in 2008 was to use the port number and the, uh, the transaction ID or something. Right. A total of like uh, 32 bits of randomness or something like that. Right, which is pretty high, but still not um, not perfect or not good enough. Really, are are cache poisoning attacks getting through despite that? I, I don't think it's very widespread. No, but it's still a theoretical concern, and um, and even Kaminsky said this that he was he was concerned about it. Well, sure, and apparently sure. Google's yeah. concerned about it, and I mean, yes, it it makes it much more difficult to execute a cache poisoning attack. Now, well, what, with, well, what with Dan Kaminsky Kaminsky. said at the time is the real solution is DNSSEC, and that has been rolling out, right? The, this is true. This is true. But um, I don't know. There's still a very long tail out there. Yeah, the other uh, thing after that all, troubles DNSSEC me, is far from universally adopted. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that troubles me is they're going to, how many of the resolvers that are inputting to the cache preserve the case of the request? Since it hasn't mattered, I would bet a bunch of them don't. This is another concern, and um, it's not clear that Google has been tracking this actually. Apparently, that um, 
most name servers out there do handle it correctly. Case randomization, they, they, they handle case randomization just fine. They say it's a small set that do not. Less than 1,000 distinct IPs oh, okay. that well, do not handle uh, randomization correctly. So this would be another temporary stopgap on the way to DNSSEC. <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> well, it's yeah. interesting. It hasn't broken the internet. I, I'm assuming they rolled it out. Yeah, well, that, that that's cool. I mean, I... It's kind of nice that uh, students in learning this will understand DNS a little better. DNS is amazingly complicated for something that seems so simple. Yeah. There is a class on this after all. That's right. Anyway, all right. And so, uh, all right, Caitlin has got the EU enforcing security. Of course. Um, well, not, not really enforcing it so much as making sure that consumers are well protected when they buy a device. So some commissions in the European Union and some lawmakers have also suggested that cell phones should have security updates for five years and three years of OS updates. So if you buy a phone, you'll at least know it'll be good for three years of operating system updates and five years of security updates. So you, you can use a phone for at least five years, which seems like a bare minimum. If you're gonna, if you're gonna buy a, an expensive device like a phone that works for five years, you know, it's, it seems like most manufacturers would do this already, but apparently not. And this of course is a problem because if your phone does not update, has no security updates after like a year or two, and you're not looking to upgrade because you just upgraded a year or two ago, then you are at risk to getting your data compromised. Well, you know, that's what we've all been saying, but you know, we all said that all those Windows XP machines would be hacked the minute they were out of updates and it didn't really happen. And you know, I really don't update my iPhone very often because it doesn't really matter. You know, I'm, we've got a problem with the boy who cried wolf here. Well, that that is true to a certain extent, but there's also, a consumer issue of phones being designed to fail or you know not having support uh, after being bought so consumers are left with phones that are essentially worthless uh, that aren't getting updates that aren't being supported anymore yeah and of course this especially applies to windows and android there you really need the updates right yeah all right well all right and and so now i was amazed but ev charging is a big concern now, right? California has declared that pretty soon uh, all new cars are going to have to be electric. And yet the uh, right-wing press has had a great fun out of the fact that a week ago, Gavin Newsom announced that. And then a few days later, he said, oh, by the way, don't charge your car because you don't have enough power. So during this Labor Day weekend, uh, you can't charge your car. And these two things don't go together very well. And so we have a huge problem with car charging there isn't enough power in the grid the chargers don't work well enough and even when they do work it takes a really long time to charge your car which is sort of horrible if you wanted to make a long drive so anyway there's a new technique some scientists have developed it's written up on themanual.com um, they claim they can charge an electric vehicle in less than 10 minutes and they say what they do is they use machine learning to learn what the signals are of a um, battery failing and how to diagnose the health of a battery. And they adjust the rate of charging dynamically somehow to make it charge in a way that won't break the battery. Because the problem is when you charge a lithium battery too fast, it builds up 
um, ions that don't make it all the way, which cause dendrites which short out the battery and make it explode, which is really not good. And they claim that with smarter charging, you can avoid all that and still charge very fast. And all you need is like a more intelligent charger. So that sounds like an upgrade that you could do. You could just uh, upgrade the computer in the charging stations. And uh, if that holds up, that would really be great because this is, I think, one huge problem for consumers. Consumers don't want to buy an electric car because you can't make a long drive. You have to have this long pause to charge it. And um, another rule, which I didn't know, uh, one of my friends that lives with a person with a Tesla told me about this. Apparently, it's already true that if you charge your Tesla, the electric company will charge you a higher rate if you charge it during the daytime than if you charge it at night. And uh, they now have passed a rule in California that electronic chargers must come with power meters. So you can tell how much power the charger is drawing, which will help you uh, decide when to charge it and know um, you'll know how much energy you're using. You'll be able to more easily use energy at the right time when it's cheaper. And that would certainly help too, I guess. Although it seems to me like a lot more useful than giving you a meter would be to just have some kind of automatic gadget that automatically defers your charging until the cheaper rate time. But anyway, um, I'm glad to see this. You know, I was sort of, uh, it's clear that California is being a leader here, jumping on these electric vehicles when many parts of the grid and everything are not really ready because, you know, we're going to be the leaders and we're going to be rushing to improve our grid. And I think that's California's natural role in the American system is we are the first people to jump on a new thing for like an environmental reason and go through all the growing pains. And then when the other states adopt it later, we'll have it all sort of rehearsed here. So anyway, uh, that's the EV stuff. And we might as well go to Alan, who's got the Greenland ice sheet. Yes, bad news on the weather front. No, I shouldn't say weather, climate, excuse me, climate front. Now that we're enjoying very toasty temperatures here in California, including the Bay Area, uh, it's time to think about global climate change. And there's a study published in Nature entitled Greenland Ice Sheet Climate Disequilibrium and Committed Sea Level Rise, which uh, re-examines some data from the past 20 years or so, looking at what's happened with the Greenland Ice Sheet. And uh, the news is not good. In fact, the, the news about climate change has not been good at all for decades now, but the news about Greenland's ice sheet is really bad because Greenland holds a tremendous amount of water in the form of glaciers. In fact, much of Greenland is covered in glaciers that are one to two miles thick. So that's a, more than a little bit of water. And if all of that water, or rather all of that ice should melt and fall into the ocean, then we're looking at a very, very substantial sea level rise globally. Very substantial sea level uh, rise to the extent that like much of San Francisco would be underwater, at least all the low-lying areas. So it kind of matters. And uh, what they found in the study is simply that uh, the, uh, there is a lot of ice melt and the ice melt is happening faster. And uh, there's a lot of discharge of water from the glaciers and the glaciers are shrinking. And um, well, that's, that's really all we need to know. It's bad news and it's happening quickly. And even if the world were to start on some uh, major effective campaign on carbon emission reduction, um, 
a lot of damage has already been done just with the the uh the changes to the atmosphere thus far, which is not to say we should all give up. We definitely do need to still uh, make changes, but um, we have to acknowledge the fact that there's going to be more sea level rise. According to this study and others, there will be more sea level rise than previously estimated and anticipated. Yeah, so I think this means our coastal cities are gonna be like, uh... You know, where is it Holland, where they build a dike and the city's actually technically underwater? Yeah, I, I should think so. That's going to be our future. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And Caitlin's got TikTok. Yeah. So there's an article uh, on the BBC talking about how students are, let me see if I can pull this up. Uh, students are deleting the app during exams or while studying for exams because they are completely addicted to the application. Uh, and I found this to be really interesting because what's going on is that for decades, machine and UI manufacturers have been looking at slot machines and trying to find the best way to keep people's attention and, you know, have the pretty lights and, you know, have the moving parts and everything like that to and keep everything sort of going from A to B to C as quickly as possible in order to make things addictive. And that was once a purview of the gambling industry. But in recent years, over the past 10, 15 years or so, that those design elements have been making their way into um, everyday applications that we use for things like watching videos, um, things like social media, even video games. And it's causing young people who don't know any better, who don't realize that these apps are designed to be addicted, um, or these apps these apps are designed to be addictive, uh, and young people are using them and not realizing that this is what can happen if you use these apps is you can literally become addicted. And there's a someone in the article, uh, Dr. Uh, Williams, uh, was looking at the mental health of children and adolescents who use TikTok. And what the, uh, what the doctor says, and this is a, an exact quote, is that because videos, because TikTok videos are so uh, short and sweet, they keep your attention going from one to another. The way it becomes addictive uh, when things make us feel good is the release of dopamine in the brain and you want more and more. Uh, and so young people are learning that they do need to, you know, disable these apps. But I'm wondering, as it becomes more clear that a lot of these applications are addictive, that they, they release the same sort of dopamine com components as things like um, slot machines, as gambling, will there be some sort of regulation or warning uh, when you download an application that has these you know, uh, addictive elements in them to keep you going into the app. I don't know. And I'd also like to know how much harm it does to kids because Facebook did the internal study that leaked out that in fact, Instagram greatly harms young women, makes them depressed and eating disorders and everything else. Right. Inst well, Instagram in particular is, is a very unique case because it's very focused on people taking selfies and being aware of their... Um, you know, physical appearances? Well, my impression was, I don't use TikTok, but my impression from the outside is a whole lot of it is the same way. It's little dancing videos and stuff and looking pretty is a big part of TikTok, but I don't yeah. know. 
So no, I absolutely. Imagine there'd be some of the same. Well, we do know that there's there are some long-term uh, consequences uh, to addiction, uh, whether it be you know alcohol or drug addiction or gambling addiction. Um, looking at things like social media addiction or you know, um, I'm going to say app addiction of some kind, uh, could also obviously have very uh, deleterious effects on users. So. Well, I, I know there's always been a bunch of people saying that video games are going to destroy our kids. I wonder how much serious research there is to see if that's actually true. Like I said, uh, there is research being done in, into the addictive nature of these. Um, and and I did I did quote Dr. Williams in the article. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now you know is this destroying our youth and everything? I don't I don't know. I mean, obviously this is a struggle that a lot of young people have to deal with now. An extra struggle that previous generations did not. Is it destroying our youth? I, I doubt it, um, but it is something that that users do need to be made aware of and attention needs to be given so that people are aware when they install these applications. Um, it, it, they are designed to get you addicted the same way as, you know, gambling and. I know others. in China, I think they limit kids to one hour a week of playing games or something. Yep. From the state and uh, and I've heard that TikTok is so powerful that it's economically swamping all the other social networks. So it is amazing. It is apparently much, much better than all the other social networks. Like I said, you know, it's, it's employing a lot of addictive UI design. Uh, so of course it's addictive. I mean, they might as well be selling booze, you know, <laughs> booze on well, the app store. I mean, it's. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, uh, will be interesting to see where it goes. Anyway, I got another uh, global warming issue from the from Antarctica. There's a glacier. They're calling the Doomsday Glacier. There is a single glacier which has enough water to raise the ocean by three feet or so. And the whole thing is likely to melt fast. And it's been melting more every year. And they say they've discovered it's actually resting on a sort of ledge that's holding it back. And it's eroding towards that ledge. So they're suggesting it's possible in the next just couple of years it will suddenly all melt at once or a large portion of it will melt at once. So anyway, um, it's just more of what Alan was saying. I think it's clear. Uh, I remember five or 10 years ago, they were talking about the global warming predictions and saying, it's really hard to predict. We don't really know how much this uh, CO2 will affect the climate. But one theory is it might be like a, um, a self-reinforcing cycle. So after you reach a certain point, it will suddenly have a really large effect as you break really big things. And it looks like that's true from the weather changes we've seen just in the last couple of years. It does appear to be true that the effect is much larger than predicted. And that's, uh, again, more bad news. From uh, There's going to be a lot of big changes coming. Anyway, and then we can go back to Alan, who's got a computer bug. A little bit of history about computer bugs. Um, one of the uh, founding stories in computer lore is the, the origin of the word bug and how it came to be. And the story is told that um, when Grace Hopper, important computer science pioneer, was working at Harvard. She made COBOL. Yes, she created COBOL, the COBOL programming language, uh, and made other important contributions too, very important contributions, very important figure. But um, she's also credited as coming up with the term bug you know, when there's some kind of defect in the code, you call it a bug, right? Well, um, there's a notebook 
and there's actually a moth that's taped into this notebook and this moth supposedly got stuck in some relay in the Harvard Mark II computer. Uh, and this, this, somebody had to go and find it, retrieve it. And it's uh, credited to Grace Hopper for doing that and coming up with the term. Well, according to the Substack written by some guy named Brian Lunduke, that's all a fiction. Um, and the evidence that he lays out is actually somewhat compelling, I have to say. Uh, and, and he makes two observations with this story. First of all, um, Grace Hopper probably did not discover this uh, or record this because the logbook in which the moth is taped was not her logbook. Apparently back in the day, all the different computer scientists each had their own logbooks. Um, so that logbook in which the moth is taped was not hers. And the, the notes, the annotations next to the, the moth are not in her handwriting. So that's looking kind of unlikely. And on top of that, that's hardly the first use of the word bug in the context of defect or problem. Apparently back in 1878, no less than um, uh, Edison, Thomas Edison used the word bug in an engineering context, a problem with some apparatus of his. So not only did Grace Hopper not come up with this term, um, but it was already in use for many decades prior. So we're gonna have to rewrite a bit of computer science history there. So, so you're ruining all our fun. Next, you're gonna tell us about Santa Claus and George Washington and the cherry tree and stuff. Uh, yes, although let me also point out that this guy, Gary Lunduk, Duke, uh, Brian Lunduk, um, is like a hard, hardcore, far-right reactionary, stop the steal type. So he may have a bit of a political agenda here. Something against Grace Hopper? Yeah, well, you never know. All right. Does seem like he's uh, not the guy to be throwing stones at, at uh, political and historical disinformation. Yeah, exactly. Well, anyway, Caitlin's got bad news about space. Yeah, so if space uh, wasn't scary enough to get strapped onto a rocket, go into a, a weightless environment, and then have to go through re-entry where you have to deal with temperatures um, of you know thousands of degrees outside, while you know you have to uh, keep yourself contained in a vehicle that's designed to be as light as possible, essentially a tin can. Uh, there's something else about space people need to know about. So Universe Today has an article uh, talking about uh, mutations, cell mutations. And what's really interesting is that, sure, yeah, we have people going up to the International Space Station for, you know, six months at a time, sometimes even longer. Um, and, you know, you could argue, yeah, you're, you're high up, you get more exposed to radiation, certainly, okay, yeah, if you're up there for a long time, maybe, yeah, cell mutations might be expected. Well, what, what scientists did is they looked at blood samples from space shuttle flights in, from 1998 to 2001. The astronauts uh, only went up, they, their average age was 42, and they had their blood drawn before and after the flights. And the astronauts were only up for a few days. 
And what they what these researchers discovered is that there are mutations in uh, in the DNA from just going up for a few days. Uh, even more worrisome is that the mutations seem very much linked to uh, to the possibility of or increased risk of cancer. So if you go up even for a little bit of time, your your chance of of getting cancer in any way uh, increases. How much does it increase? I don't know. It just increases. There's evidence of mutations of, of just like I said, just a few days. So. Yeah, well, this is the thing. This is why I think the moon base and sending humans to Mars is a highly iffy idea. Right. Uh, it's, it's getting even more iffy. And we really need a way to deal with radiation in space. Uh, right now, it's there's there's very little way to deal with it. In fact, we thought, well, if we are so close to the Earth, the Earth's magnetosphere should do a lot of the... Uh, protection for us um but apparently that's not even enough so well you know i've also heard that you get a considerable dose just by flying an airplane you do um it's not enough to cause cancer it's basically like a dental x-ray it's you know you, you if you fly all the time you might want to think about your exposure but uh, an occasional flight's not going to you know do anything so. I remember years ago, they said a single flight from like uh, America to Europe was the equivalent of a chest x-ray, which is a whole lot more than a dental x-ray. Or, yeah, it's a chest x-ray, I suppose, and that, yeah. And that, anyway, um, yeah, you know, I'm I'm less enchanted with flying everywhere lately. I'm thinking California's pretty nice. I'm just going to attend conferences virtually if they're too far away. Anyway, and uh, the last one here is Twitter. Twitter is in big financial trouble in addition to their board of directors being all messed up thanks to Elon and everybody not even being sure who the heck is running the place. But they're trying to make money, which they never have. And their latest plan is to compete with OnlyFans by monetizing porn. Apparently, there's considerable porn on Twitter. I didn't know this, but apparently there is. And they would like to like openly make money off the porn. But what they've discovered is that they cannot really verify the age of the actors and they cannot really verify the age of the viewers and therefore they're getting into the terrifying legal quagmire of child porn and child endangerment and it, they're, they're abandoning the plans because they really don't have a good way to, to avoid that and apparently um, they quote uh, Matthew Green well-known cryptographer here and he says I didn't know this all the porn sites are using the same system to prevent um, child sex abuse there's an online platform called PhotoDNA, which recognizes known child sex abuse images. So you run this software and it tells you like an antivirus, if any of the images are in the list of known underage images. But of course that doesn't stop the new ones that aren't in the database yet. And nobody yet has any solution for that. So uh, the whole porn industry is suffering from this problem. And uh, there is no immediate solution in the books. They've tried using, um, AI, and that has had drastic false positives, like some guy took a picture of a kid that had a disease problem and sent it to his doctor, and then he ended up flagged for child porn and prosecuted and everything else. So uh, this, uh, this issue is really big and sits out there unsolved, and is a big problem with sort of all handling of photographs on the internet. Anyway, but Twitter is apparently going to just uh, use avoidance to just not get in this business and avoid that risk. 
And then they're back to their original risk, which is Twitter just doesn't make any money. And how does it continue to exist this way? Anyway, uh, that's it for this one. And we'll be back on Friday.